ahead and take your Bible, and let me invite you to be finding your place once more with me in uh, the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, this is a chapter that we've been working our way through over the last several weeks, and uh, we'll return here once more, and then God willing, we'll finish our study of the resurrection next week with one final message as I finish our study of this chapter. But the theme of this chapter, the central theme is resurrection, both the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection, the future resurrection of the Christian. And so what we've seen in this chapter as the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, he begins by basically explaining that our gospel is indeed a resurrection gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And because of that, he says, beginning in verse 12, that we have resurrection hope. And if you'll remember, uh, in those verses, he sort of presents this hypothetical situation. If the resurrection were not true... What then? And the reason he does that is because there were some in the Corinthian church who had been denying the truth of bodily resurrection. And some in the church had bought into this Greek philosophy, which was not true. And so Paul is making an argument then in this chapter. If Christ, if there is no resurrection, Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain. Our faith would be in vain. And ultimately, he says, we would have no hope in the world. But, he says, Christ is in fact risen from the dead, verse 20. And so that means we have resurrection hope. And because Christ is risen from the dead, there beginning in verse 20, he says, we have a resurrection guarantee as believers. Because Christ is the first fruits of a, of a, a harvest to come in the future. And just as there was bodily resurrection for the Lord Jesus, so also will there be future bodily resurrection for the believer, for those who are in Jesus Christ. And then that leads uh, really to an incentive for life. And so last week we looked really at verses 20 through verse 34 and how the resurrection provides an incentive for us as we practically live our lives. And basically Paul makes the point that Because Christ is risen, this ought to be a great motivation for the believer to lay down his or her life for the cause of Christ in the world, for the mission of God in the world. And that's what the Apostle Paul had done, was willing to face danger and peril. And what was it that led him to do that? It was this hope that he had that this life is not all that there is, but that there is resurrection for the believer in Jesus Christ. Now, we get to verse 35, and in verse 35, you'll notice that Paul raises two questions, and these are sort of a couple of questions that he sort of presupposes that are being asked by those who were the skeptics in Corinth, and those questions simply are this, how are the dead raised, and it's sort of a skeptical question, and the second question, with what kind of body do they come? And so all the way through verse 49 and into verse 50, Paul answers those two questions. How is it that the dead are raised? 
And what kind of body is it that they come with? And so he explains how our resurrection body will be an upgrade from the one that we currently have now. So you're there with me. Verse 35, let's begin reading. The Bible says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. (laughs) Paul wasn't one to mince words, was he? It's pretty direct here. He's saying it's a foolish question. You're without understanding. You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans and another for animals, another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Now listen to this, verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of Adam, the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of Christ, the man of heaven. So Paul is dealing with the resurrection body, what it's going to be like. And so I want to speak from this thought this morning, resurrection upgrade. Resurrection upgrade. Uh, The definition of upgrade, it's to raise something to a higher standard. It's to replace something with a newer and better version of the same thing. Now, all of us are probably familiar with that language as it pertains to the world of technology. Let's just suppose you've been using a software product for a while, and I imagine you're probably used to the occasional prompt asking you to run updates on your computer. Or you may kind of be like me, and as soon as you turn your computer on in the morning, you see that little update, and you say, remind me tomorrow, (laughs) okay, because you don't have time for that. The next thing you know, your computer is way behind because you've not ran your updates, right? But ever so often, there'll be a prompt for you to upgrade that software, And you may think, well, that is probably meaning the same thing, right? Update, upgrade. When in the world of technology, an update is totally different from an upgrade, and an upgrade is totally different from an update. You say, well, what's the difference? 
Well, the difference between a software update versus a software upgrade, it's like the difference between maintaining and servicing your old vehicle versus trading in your old vehicle for a brand new one. Does that make sense? Uh, it's, it's, it's an update to your phone is running some type of an update on the current phone that you have, but an upgrade, well, that's when you go to the Verizon store and you trade that thing in for the new, later, and greater model. And usually that's every couple of years for a lot of folks. Now, listen, when the Bible describes bodily resurrection, it's not using the language of an update, but that of an upgrade. And it means that the body you and I will receive one day is going to be an entirely new body altogether. Now, to be sure, it will still be you. And as such, you will still be identifiable as you. Uh, but the Apostle Paul is explaining this truth uh, for us with detail here beginning in verse number 35. So if you're curious about this, if you've ever wondered what our future resurrection bodies are going to be like, then you would do well to pay close attention to what Paul writes here in these verses. So notice a few things from the text. Uh, to begin with, notice that Paul makes an observation. Uh, what is the observation? Well, he begins by asking these questions from which he's going to make his argument. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body, uh, with what kind of body do they come? So again, Paul is dealing with these questions that were raised by those who had been questioning the doctrine of resurrection. Again, there were those in the city of Corinth who had been denying this truth of bodily resurrection. Corinth was a Greek city, and Greek philosophy did not allow for the resurrection of the dead. And so in the first century Greek world, the Greeks held to this philosophical approach that the body was material, uh, the body was temporary, and therefore it was a distraction from one's true being, the soul. And so according to their logic, what happened to the body ultimately was irrelevant to the soul. And that real salvation came when the, the soul was freed from the prison of the body. And New Testament Christianity is different than that because the Bible teaches that the physical body is part of God's original good creation and therefore is an essential part of humanity. Uh, let's not forget the fact that the Son of God in no way diminished in his deity, in his incarnation, he took on humanity. John 1 says that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, and so, again, the eternal Son of God took on flesh, became human in his incarnation, and walked where we walked and felt what we felt so that he might rescue us from our fallen condition. So again, even the incarnation itself ought to be enough to teach us that the body is not bad. But it's part of God's good creation and God has a plan for the body. Now here's the thing, because of Adam's sin, the body's now subject to corruption, sin, and death in a fallen state of existence. And so the plan of God is not to annihilate the body, or to free the soul and keep the soul in this eternal disembodied existence, but instead the plan of God is to restore and glorify the physical part of our humanity through bodily resurrection. 
And so when you think about salvation doctrine, you understand that salvation uh, involves regeneration. That means the Spirit gives life to you as a believer. It involves justification through faith. This is by God's grace, which means you're justified, declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ is credited to your account as a believer. It involves sanctification, which means you're set apart as someone who is now in Jesus Christ. You're being conformed to the image of Christ now as you live your Christian life. And yet one day there's a future aspect to your salvation and it's glorification. Glorification, whereby you're going to be given a brand new resurrection glorified body just like that of the Lord Jesus Christ, patterned after his own body in his own bodily resurrection. In fact, this is so sure that in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul uses past tense language uh, when he describes your salvation. And all that's involved with your salvation as a believer. He says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now listen to this. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now listen to the language here. He's using past tense language to describe this reality that's true of you in Jesus Christ. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so whenever you begin to deal with the weaknesses and, and, and you, you see the aging process beginning to take its toll on your mortal body, In your spirit, in your mind, listen, go to Romans chapter 8 and say, listen, God has a plan for my body. And what is that plan? That plan is resurrection. So this is the observation then that Paul is making in these verses. He's going to deal with these questions. How is it that the dead are raised? With what type of body do they come? And to those who were skeptics and those who were sowing discord and false philosophy in the minds of these Corinthian believers, Paul says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And so he's rebuking and correcting those who were appealing to Greek philosophy rather than the truth of Scripture. And their own reasoning had led them down a path of unbelief. Now, Before I move on, let me say this. The same thing happens in the life of any person who rejects the parts of the Bible that he or she doesn't agree with because they can't understand them. It is not for you and me to come to this book and pick and choose the parts of this book that we like and will believe and the parts we don't like, therefore we won't believe. And oftentimes this kind of thing happens with those who become so immersed in the world's philosophies and theories. I'm thinking of evolutionary theory. I'm thinking about questions of origin. And so they begin immersing themselves in the world's philosophy and before you know it, they end up ripping the first three chapters out of their Bible. And they come up with all kinds of logic and rationale for doing that and say, oh, it's all symbolic, it's not real, and this, that, and the other. Are you smarter than Jesus is? Because Jesus believed it was real. Jesus believed in a literal Adam and Eve. 
So refusal to be swept up by the predominant philosophies and theories of today, this is a constant battle for the church that prioritizes the truth. Jude 3 says we've got to contend earnestly for the truth that's been delivered once for all to the saints. Colossians 2, see to it, no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit that's according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, not according to Christ. So again, this is the observation that Paul makes. Now, there's a second thing, and it leads to an illustration that he gives. He says there in verse 36, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And so the illustration that he's going to use comes from the world of agriculture and the world of horticulture. And so he's using this analogy of sowing, planting, growth, new life that springs up from a seed that is planted, that goes through a process of death, burial, resurrection life, that which springs up. So again, he's making this point that resurrection, that does not mean resuscitation. Which, by the way, every other person who Jesus raised from the dead in the Gospels wasn't resurrection in the sense that it was like the Lord's resurrection, raised to never die again, it was resuscitation. Which meant that Lazarus and Jairus' daughter and everyone else that Jesus raised to life, they had to go through that process of dying again. But that's not what resurrection in the true sense of the term means. So the resurrection bodies that we're going to be given will be something brand new, even though there's continuity between the body that's been buried and the body that is to be raised. You're still going to be you. And so again, Paul is using this analogy of planting a seed. This act of planting a seed in the ground involves its own process of death and resurrection. What is sown does not spring to life unless it first dies in the earth. And so whenever a farmer goes out and he plants his crop, he doesn't plant wheat stalks. He doesn't go out and plant corn stalks. I mean, what is it that he plants in his garden? He plants seeds. And those seeds, to look at those seeds, uh, as you would hold those tiny seeds in your hand, they're dry, they're hardened, there may not be any attractive quality about those seeds whatsoever, they may even be dead looking, but he doesn't expect those same seeds to come up at the harvest. The seed dies, but from that death comes life, and that's the point that Paul is making here. From the seed that's planted emerges the body of a brand new plant. Jesus used that same analogy in John 12. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He says, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So what is sown must die before new life can spring up. And so he even goes on to make this point that what comes up at the harvest is much more splendid than what went into the ground whenever it was initially sown. You know, you, those of you ladies you, you who garden, you plant flowers, you plant flower bulbs, there's nothing particularly attractive about those, those tulip bulbs. In fact, someone might even say a tulip bulb is pretty ugly. But you plant that tulip bulb in 
the soil, and before long, what you have is a beautiful flower that has sprung up. And isn't it amazing how every flower goes through this process, how every plant goes through this same process? And so it's as if God has programmed into nature itself this illustration of death and resurrection. I think I love spring of the year. I was telling someone recently, I think April and May are absolutely my favorite months of the year. I love it when the temperatures get warm. I don't like it to be too warm, but I like it to be just right. I like it about 65 degrees to 70 degrees. No clouds in the sky, longer days, green grass, new growth on the trees, flowers everywhere. But isn't it amazing the difference in May? If you go back just a couple of months, go back to January, go back to the middle of winter, go back to the brown death of winter. So even within the seasons, within nature itself, there's sort of this picture of death and resurrection. In the heart of winter, we long for springtime. We long for the flower of youth. And that's what Paul is saying here in this analogy. Another analogy that he uses is that of the body itself, and he says that there are different kinds of bodies. There are a variety of existences. Verse 39, he says, not all flesh is the same. You've got one kind for humans and another kind for animals and another for birds and another for fish. You know this. You know, when you guys reach up to your sweetheart, your wife there, you, reach, you go in to give her a kiss or a peck on the cheek and you, you feel the warmth of her flesh, you, you don't feel the scales of a bass fish, right? But there's the warmth of human flesh. It's different flesh, animals, different flesh for fish and birds. That's what Paul is saying here. I read something from the world of biochemistry. I don't know a thing in the world about it, but you don't know that. I'm just going to read you a quote. It sounds smart. But someone says, I've read that there are some 600 octodecillion different combinations of amino acids. Octodecillion. Can you even begin to imagine that number? Our national debt may be somewhere close to that. But it's 10 to the 108th power or a one with 108 zeros. That's how many different combinations of amino acids that there are. Amino acids, these are the building blocks of all of life. You know the, the DNA and the genetic code that is programmed into life. Not only does each type of plant and animal life have a distinct pattern of amino acids, but each individual plant, animal, and human being has its own unique grouping. So even within those individual kinds of exist, there's that much variety. It's amazing. And here's what this means. No two flowers, no two snowflakes, no two seeds, no two blades of grass, no two human beings, even identical twins, are exactly alike. And yet each is completely identified with its own species or kind. And so even DNA and all of the discoveries uh, that, that, have, that have come out of just what, what we now know about DNA blows Darwin's theory out of the water. And Paul says that's just true. These earthly bodies, they're also heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and no two stars are alike. 
And the stars are given their color in the night sky. That's all because of the temperature of those individual stars. Every star differs in its temperature, and there's a different color or shade to the star. And so Paul's point here is that God has infinite creative capacity. Why in the world would we think that it's too hard for him to recreate and resurrect our body no matter how he chooses to do so? How big of a God do you serve? So nature has lessons to teach humanity. And this is the illustration that Paul is using. So his observation gives way to this illustration and then he offers an explanation there beginning in verse 42. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Having dealt with the first question, how are the dead raised? Now in verses 42 through 49, he's dealing with the second question, with what kind of body do they come? In what way will our future resurrection body be different than our body now? You say, all right, how is it going to be an upgrade? Well, notice the differences beginning in verse 42. Paul says that the current body that we have is perishable, but the one that we're going to be given is going to be imperishable. That means we're going to be given an indestructible body in the resurrection. He says there, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. To say that something is perishable is to say that it has a shelf life. You understand this when you go to the grocery store and you buy groceries. There are non-perishable items that you put in your cart, you bring home, you put in the, the pantry. The items that are more perishable, they're placed in your refrigerator. Perishable items are those that tend to break down. Perishable items are those that tend to spoil with time. And so the word that he uses there in verse 42, perishable, it's a word that means to be subject to ruin and corruption. Our current bodies are in the process of wearing out. And you may not think that they are when you're young, but it doesn't take us too long to figure out that the older we get, the more these bodies are perishable. Where there was strength, now there's weakness. There are aches and pains associated with age. Aging takes its toll out. While you might be able to hide it for a while, it can't be reversed. And no person explains this any better or more poetically than the preacher of Israel. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon of Israel. What is it that Solomon said as he closes out uh, his, his final chapter there in Ecclesiastes? He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the days draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. In other words, he's saying, serve God, make the most of your youth, serve him, love him, honor him, remember him when you're young. Now listen, here's what we tend to think when we're young. I've got the rest of my life to serve God. I'm going to go out and sow my wild oats now. That's the exact opposite of what the Bible tells us to do. Remember him when you're young. Serve him. Do things for him. Make daring exploits for God, even while you're young, because the days are coming when there are going to be some physical limitations. He says in verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, the grinders cease because they are few. What's he talking about? He's talking about you lose your teeth the older you get. 
When those who look through the windows are dimmed, what's he talking about? He's talking about how your eyesight gets worse the older that you get. I've been blind as a bat since the second grade. The doors of the street are shut. What's he talking about? He's talking about how you're hearing. You get harder of hearing the older that you get. When the sound of grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird. When you were young, you could sleep through the night. A bomb could go off in the front yard and it wouldn't phase you. But man, a bird chirps three houses down in the neighbor's tree and you hear it and you wake up and you're like, I can't sleep. So he's just describing this process of aging. And then he says in verse 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So the symbolism then that he's using there is that of a house that's slowly breaking down and falling apart. Our eyes dim, our ears deafen, our senses dull. And slowly but surely, these bodies wear down and deteriorate until the time comes when they completely shut down in death. And the reason... It's what Paul says in verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15. These are perishable bodies subject to corruption brought on by a fallen existence. However, the body that we're going to receive in the resurrection, Paul says it's an imperishable body. That means in no way will it ever be subject to corruption. It will not have a shelf life, but rather it will be fit for eternity. That means instead of winding down, it will always be revved up. Instead of aging, it will always be in the flower of youth. Instead of deteriorating, it will always be in its prime. No glasses needed. No hearing aids needed. No canes or walkers needed. Now, something else as far as this body, Paul goes on to explain how this current body is one of dishonor. But the one that we're going to be given is one that will be glorified. So the difference is dishonor and glory. Verse 43, sown in dishonor, raised in glory. That word dishonor there indicates shame. Paul may be alluding to the fact, the condition of the body as it breaks down in death, it's sown, that is, it's buried in dishonor, hidden in the earth or in a tomb because of the process that happens to the body as the body breaks down after death. We bury those who have died, their bodies. So that's dis but then glory. The resurrection body will be one of glory. The word that's used there, it means brilliance. It's the idea that there's going to be a splendid, radiant quality about the bodies that we're going to be given in the resurrection incorruptible, glorified, like the resplendent beauty of a flower that burst forth from a seed planted in the earth. That's what we have to look forward to. And then he goes on in verse 43 and says that it's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. These bodies are subject to weakness. But the indestructible body that we're going to be given in the resurrection will be one of power. That word weakness means frail, feeble, as far as the body is concerned, it describes our common weakness, our fragile health. It's amazing how just a germ, uh, how, how an undetected particle can affect your health for days. How a virus can come and knock you out, put you on your back for days. 
Why is that? It's because these bodies are sown in weakness. When applied to the soul, this word weakness speaks of absence of strength to understand something, to do something, to bear up under stress. All of us can identify with that, can't we? You may think you're Superman or Superwoman, but I'm here to tell you, you're not. You may think you don't need someone else in your life. You may think you don't need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You may think you don't need God's Word in your life, but I'm telling you, you, you do. Because this body is sown in weakness. All of us know what we personally struggle with. But the body that's raised will be raised in power. The word there, it's dunamis. It's the same word we get the word dynamite from. It describes explosive power and ability. In the resurrection, all weaknesses will be vanquished and we will live a perfect, permanent existence with Christ. And won't it be wonderful there? And then verse 44, 45, 46, Paul talks about how this body is a natural body, but the body that we're going to be given in the resurrection is a spiritual body. He's not saying that the resurrection body is not physical. Don't misunderstand what he's saying there because we know that it most certainly is. All we have to do is look at what the gospels say about the body of Jesus after his resurrection. One of the early heresies that the church had to deal with concerning the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, was this idea that Christ emerged from the tomb uh, simply a spirit. It wasn't a bodily resurrection, but it was a spiritual resurrection as if there were no physical body that Christ had after his resurrection. We know that's not the case. Because Luke 24, as the disciples were talking, Jesus, after his resurrection, stood among them and said, Peace be unto you. And the Bible says that they were scared. They were frightened. They thought they saw a ghost, a spirit. And Jesus says to them, Why are you troubled? See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Then he began to show him his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved and marveled, he said, let me give you some further proof. Y'all got anything to eat? It wasn't because he was hungry. It wasn't because that resurrection body needed the nutrients and the sustenance from a piece of fish, but they gave him a piece of fish. He took it. He ate it before them because he was proving to them, you know something? It's me. It's me. <laughs> So patterned after his, Paul says that our resurrection body will be a spiritual body. He doesn't say that it will be a spirit, a ghost, or an apparition. This natural body is one that's prone to deterioration and weakness and eventual death, but the spiritual body that we're going to be given will be one that's perfectly fit for eternal existence. One that is empowered by the Spirit of God. One that, listen, there will be no sin. Completely free from the domain and the presence of sin. So it's a supernatural upgrade. That's what Paul is describing here. A supernatural upgrade. And then verse 47, he says, ultimately, these bodies are earthly, but the body that we're going to be given in resurrection is going to be heavenly. As the first man was from the earth, he was a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also were those who were of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also were those who were of heaven. 
So as those who are naturally born humans, we bear the same earthly nature as Adam. But when we are resurrected, we will bear the same heavenly nature as the Lord Jesus. Now let me tell you something. Spiritually, as a believer, you've already been raised with Christ already been raised with Christ, which means that his life is flowing through you as someone who has been saved by grace through faith. And the only thing that I'm waiting for now is the future redemption of my body. Now, I know this brings up questions. People say, well, what about those who have died? What about believers who have died? What about my loved one who's died? Where is my believer now? Where is my loved one now? The scripture says for the believer now to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The dying thief on the cross, remember what Jesus said? When the thief said, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, Jesus said, let me tell you something. Today, you will be with me in paradise, heaven, and yet there still is this future aspect at the coming of Christ when the dead in Christ will be given their resurrection body and the generation of believers that are alive at the coming of the Lord, they will be raptured and will receive their resurrection body. Christ will establish his kingdom here. The earth will be remade. And the time will come when God will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, let me give you just some closing application before we finish. All of this is intended to have a very practical impact on your life. I said it a minute ago. I don't think we think about heaven nowhere near enough. A lot of it may be because there's things we don't quite understand. But the truth of resurrection, the truth of heaven, this should impact the way I live my life now. That's what Paul wants the church to understand. So think about this. God has uniquely designed your body for you. So, you know what you need to do? You need to accept it as it is. So much of what's going on in our society today, people taking sides on this issue and people taking sides on that issue, so many people are trying to find their identity. They're trying to find it in things that will not last. But a believer is someone who has found his or her identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if God has designed a seed to be unique in what it is, think about how much more unique you are as someone who's been uniquely made in the image of God. There's not a single one of us who are perfect. All of us have blemishes that we try to hide. But God has made each one of us unique, and our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. A second point of application is this. God has intentionally distinguished your body from someone else's. So that means you don't have to live your life in such a way whereby you constantly compare yourself with other people. You may not have the looks that someone else has. You may not have the brains that someone else has. But that doesn't make you any less of a person than they are. <laughs> Who's to know? Maybe one day in the resurrection there's going to be a great reversal. Beautiful people now are going to be ugly then. Ugly people now are going to be beautiful then. Fit people now are going to be fat then. Fat people now are going to be fit then, right? I don't know. No, that's not true. But God's made each one of us different. And man, the world would be a plain place, boring place if he hadn't. 
A final point of application is this. God has sovereignly determined that these natural physical bodies have their own limitations. So that means you don't have to go through this life as your physical body begins to age and wear and tear and break down. You don't have to live with anxiety, fear, guilt, or depression. It does not mean that you are deficient. It means you just haven't yet received your upgrade. Oh, but one day you will. Most of you are familiar with Joni Erickson Tata. You know, her ministry, Johnny and Friends, Joni and Friends. She was left paralyzed, I think when she was a teenager, from a diving accident. She was 17, 18 years old. And so she's, I guess in her 70s now, but she spent most of her life as a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. But here's what she said about that. She said, I, I can hardly believe this. Talking about resurrection truth. She says, I, with shriveled, bent fingers and atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body. Bright and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. And can you imagine the hope that this gives someone spinal cord injured like me? Or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, or has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who's manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. It's only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. And aren't you grateful for it this morning? Let's stand as we pray. Now, folks, we may not be given all the answers to all the questions we may have, but we are given sufficient truth to believe. And our inability to understand or explain something fully should not be a reason to reject it if it's clearly taught in the pages of God's word. We receive it by faith. By faith. God will raise our mortal bodies from the dead just as he raised Jesus' body from the grave. Death is not to be feared. The loss of a loved one is not something to be feared. Paul says in, I believe it's in Philippians chapter 1 or chapter 3, you know what? To depart and be with Christ is far better. Far better. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior today, can I just urge you, repent of your sin, believe the gospel, believe that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised to life again on the third day according to the scriptures. Whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believes in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, will be saved. Do you know him today? Do you have resurrection hope that transcends the difficulties of life, that transcends the grave? If not, you can have it today by trusting Christ alone as your Savior. Lord, thank you for this precious truth of resurrection. Thank you for the hope that we have in heaven. And Lord, when it's so easy for us to live myopic lives where all we look around and see brings discouragement to our Lord, help us to look up. As Colossians 3 says, help us to set our affections on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Because the thing is, we died when Christ died. 
We've been raised to newness of life in Christ. Christ is our life. And one day when he appears, the scripture says we will appear with him in glory. Oh, what hope this is. We worship you, Lord. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.